Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Today, uh, we are delighted to have our guest speaker, Daniela Chakova. Uh, she's going to be introduced to us by Marek Svoboda, and uh, Marek uh, grew up in Prague initially, but came and got an honors degree from Columbia University, and then he is now in the MD-PhD program here at Geisel and he is in the Quantitative Biomedical Sciences Division. Uh, he's going to be introducing our guest. Just before he does that, I'll remind you that to get credit for today's uh, session, you do SE58, which is on the wall, text that to the appropriate place, and your CME credits will be delivered automatically. Mark, come tell us about our guest today. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm honored and proud um, to introduce Dr. Daniela Chihakova, who originally came from uh, the Czech Republic, uh, where she obtained her MD and PhD degrees at the third medical uh, faculty of Charles University in Prague. Um, she completed her postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins University and later became a faculty member at the same institution. Currently, she's an Associate Professor in the Department of Pathology uh, at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine with a joint appointment in the Department of Molecular Biology and Immunology at Bloom Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. She is also a board-certified clinical laboratory immunologist, a director of Immune Disorders Laboratory, and director of World, he World Health Organization Collaborating Center at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Chihakova is also a member of the editorial board of clinical immunology and serves on the American Heart Association study section. Her research has been supported by the NIH, the Myocarditis Foundation, Children's Cardiomyopathy Foundation, William Wolkoff Smith Charitable Trust, Murawski Discovery Award, National Organization for Rare Diseases, American Autoimmune-Related Diseases Association, American Heart Association, Sjergen Syndrome Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins Catalyst Award. Dr. Chihakova's research investigates the pathogenesis of autoimmune diseases. Specifically, uh, her laboratory has studied the pathogenic, uh, pathogenic role of SSA and SSB antibodies in the development of congenital complete um, heart block and the susceptibility to candida infections in patients with autoimmune poly uh, polyendocardiopathy, candidiasis, ectodermal dystrophy. Her main, main interests, however, uh, lie in describing the role of inflammatory cytokines as well as cardiac resident cells involved in myocarditis and its sequela, inflammatory dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, using a myocarditis mouse model. That, I believe, is also going to be uh, the subject of today's talk. Um, without giving away any more, uh, please help me welcome Dr. Daniela Chihakova. Thank you for this wonderful introduction, and thank you for inviting me here. Uh, it's my first time, um, and I, you know, I really love it. We have such a welcoming design of, of, of the building, and it just feels really warm, not like being in a medical institution. So thank you very much. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about our research. I have no disclosures, and my uh, objective is to show you a new pathway um, that we discovered that lead from IL-17 to cardiac fibroblast um, and cardiac monocytes and to heart failure. But since this is a ground rounds, um, I want to talk a little bit about myocarditis first um, as a clinical entity. So WHO uh, classified myocarditis as inflammation of the myocardium uh, diagnosed by established histological, immunological, and immunohistochemical criteria. What does it mean? So there is a... Um, a histological Dallas criteria when you do an endomyocardial biopsy and stain with hematoxylin elzin. Uh, this should help you uh, to see a histological evidence of inflammation, inflammatory infiltrates, and a cardiomyocytes death uh, in, in the slide. Um, this has been um, 
quite unspecific um, and not, not uh, sensitivity is quite low um, of the, the last criteria. Therefore, there was uh, introduction of the immunohistochemical criteria um, that we are staining for different immune cells, for macrophages, T cells, and also for uh, HLA uh, to uh, enhance the sensitivity of the diagnosis. So I wanted to show you a picture. So I'm from the Department of Pathology. Um, so this is something that uh, uh, we do quite often. So this top picture is pointing, um, see, arrows, these black arrows to the uh, inflammatory infiltrate. The infiltrate could differ. Uh, so there are different types of uh, myocarditis, and they could dis be distinguished also by the type of the inflammatory cells. So we can see a lymphocytic, we can see a... Uh, lots of uh, myeloid cells in almost all types of myocarditis, but there could be also a type uh, that is characterized by eosinophilic infiltration. So you can see this red eosinophilic uh, cytoplasm that is kind of popping at you. Um, most of the cells infiltrating this particular uh, patient's heart are eosinophils. So eosinophilic myocarditis could develop in patients that have predisposing conditions like allergies or hyperalcinophilia, but could be also idiopathic in patients that have no predisposing conditions. So this is an electron microscopy picture of eosinophilic myocarditis that we took uh, for our uh, cover of Journal of Experimental Medicine last year. So I think it illustrates beautifully what the immune cells do to the heart. So this is uh, pseudocolored. So normally uh, the electron microscopy pictures are uh, just in grayscale, but we pseudocolor it, and you can see that the cardiomyocytes that here have normal architecture are completely disrupted here. These uh, red colored cells are eosinophils, and they are completely uh, uh, chewing these, these cardiomyocytes, and this is a debris. Uh, so the architecture is uh, disrupted here. Here you can see eosinophil in the capillary. Um, so here I want to show you why the immunohistochemical criteria were introduced next to the Dallas criteria. So this is how the H&E slide would look like for a different types of diagnosis. So here you have examples of uh, different types of myocarditis. And you can see you can stain for T-cell, you can stain for macrophages, and it helps you to distinguish different types. So if you have lots of macrophages, you might have a giant cell myocarditis, which has the worst prognosis. Um, if you have lots of T-cells, it will be probably a lymphocytic uh, myocarditis. You can also appreciate, like in this picture, the severity of the myocarditis. You can hardly see any normal cardiomyocytes there. And this kind of a pinkish um, uh, structures here are fibrosis. So you have inflammation together with fibrosis going at the same time. So what is causing myocarditis? So myocarditis is a little elusive clinical entity um, because of the variety of uh, types uh, that we discuss now in the, based on histology and based on cells that are infiltrating heart, and also because of the causes are uh, quite variable. But we know from autopsy studies that most of the myocarditis uh, uh, are caused by viruses. And among the viruses, um, about one-third are pyrovirus B19, Pyrovirus is very interesting because it actually doesn't have a tropism for the cardiomyocytes. It actually infect uh, endothelial cells in the heart. Um, next third is uh, enteroviruses, Coxsackie B3, that has a tropism for the cardiomyocytes and directly can, can target uh, cardiomyocytes. Um, adenovirus and herpes viruses would be on the third and fourth place. But you can have many other uh, viruses that has been shown to, to cause myocarditis, HIV, uh, smallpox. So if you knew a few years ago after 9-11, uh, smallpox vaccination was reintroduced to the army and had to be stopped because of the cases of myocarditis uh, that happened uh, to the vaccinated uh, soldiers. So. Uh, viruses, if you, you know, 70% of myocarditis cases will have a viral myocarditis, but you can have bacterial myocarditis, parasitic, uh, Chagas disease in the endemic areas. Uh, toxins, drugs could also cause uh, myocarditis. And then you have this big box of uh, uh, immunological uh, uh, syndromes uh, that they basically boxed in um, uh, 
autoimmune origins. Uh, so we consider some of the cases of myocarditis, like giant cell myocarditis. We don't see any replicating virus or any infectious agents. So this appears to be autoimmune in origin. Some of the cases of eosinophilic myocarditis without any predisposition to have a eosinophilia, hypereosinophilia, um, are probably also autoimmune uh, in origin. We also know that patients with systemic autoimmune diseases like lupus, Sjögren syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, in autopsy studies have subclinical myocarditis, and it's happening probably in a larger percentage than we previously understood. Uh, so definitely uh, autoimmune, uh, autoimmunity is a cause of some very severe myocarditis cases, so the giant cell myocarditis or eosinophilic necrotizing myocarditis without hyperosinophilia are one of the most severe cases and one of the most difficult to treat. So how do myocarditis present uh, to the clinicians? So it's very diverse, and that's what makes uh, myocarditis hard to diagnose. It's a, it's a great mimicker of many diseases. It could come from just um, Malaysia not feeling well, uh, being under the weather, having virus symptoms from the original virus infection, to um, sudden death uh, from uh, ventricular arrhythmias or um, sudden unexpected acute heart failure. Um, there could be a chest pain mimicking a heart failure, mimicking a, a myocardial infarction or pericarditis, or you could have a, a chronic heart failure as a first presentation of myocarditis. And some patients uh, present as, as idiopathic dilatative cardiomyopathy when you do a biopsy. About one-third of patients with unexpected dilatative cardiomyopathy, you will find a vi viral genome uh, in their heart, uh, suggesting that they might have uh, prior myocarditis that was not diagnosed. Diagnosis uh, of myocarditis is difficult. Uh, and basically, it's a mixture of approaches uh, that are done in clinic. So troponin I and troponin T um, can be elevated, but sensitivity is quite low. Specificity is a little bit better, around 89%, but sensitivity in a, um, a control trial was about only 38%, so that's not, uh, that's not ideal. So if you have an increased troponin I, we know that you have a worse prognosis, uh, but if you don't, it doesn't exclude the diagnosis of myocarditis. EKG, ECO, uh, there could be a mimicking a heart infarction, that this changes, or it could be normal, so this is nonspecific. Uh, lately, especially in the U.S., we are using uh, cardiovascular magnetic resonance imaging, especially with late gadolinium enhancement. And I show you one picture right here. So you can see the late gadolinium uh, enhancement uh, uh, right in that region. It's patchy because of the disease. It's also focal. And the problem is, again, uh, sensitivity, because if you have a very borderline or, or uh, uh, low um, inflammation in the heart, you will not see any abnormalities. So gold standard and recommended by American Heart Association as well as WHO is still endomyocardial biopsy. Uh, endomyocardial biopsy is, of course, difficult, and it's not being done as much as it's recommended and according to the criteria when it's recommended. The reasons, are, the reasons vary. Uh, the uh, complications in a relatively stable patients are below 1%, uh, but you, know, you, have to, you have to take a multiple samples. It's recommended at least five samples. I know in Europe they are routinely taking more. There's also discussion, should we biopsy right ventricle, left ventricle, both ventricles? So there was a study that showed that if you biopsy both ventricles, your sensitivity goes up, not surprisingly. But usually in the U.S., as my understanding is, uh, right, bio right ventricle biopsy is done. So there should be a multiple samples to try to catch that focal, uh, focal disease that myocarditis is. A negative sampling with a normal uh, biopsy sample does not exclude myocarditis. So this is difficult, and together with the Dallas criteria I mentioned in the beginning, that also it, it depends on the pathologist of, of their experience if they can recognize and, and rightly diagnose uh, myocarditis. The pathologists should be blinded. They shouldn't know about the history and suspicion of myocarditis because then they, uh, you know, that it should be as much, as much uh, uh, blinded as possible. So therapy. 
Therapy is another problem with myocarditis patients because we don't really have good guidelines. So supportive therapy and attention to, uh, to treatment of heart failure and arrhythmia, that's of course uh, uh, must be done and there are studies showing that if uh, good treatment is, is provided for the heart failure, the patients have better prognosis. But uh, besides mechanical support, we are a little bit in a, in a gray area. So you can see a case report uh, that uh, some clinicians are using immunosuppressive therapy. The immunosuppressive therapy could range from glucocorticoids, and glucocorticoids could be just uh, really perfect for some types of myocarditis, like myocarditis associated with hyperosinophilia. And there is some even more serious immunosuppressive therapy, like cyclosporine and AZT, uh, that has been specially uh, used for patients with giant cell myocarditis and for patients that uh, suspected autoimmune origin is, uh, uh, is uh, suspected and, and should not be used when the viral genome, when uh, active replication of virus was not assessed. Because as you can imagine, if you have acute viral myocarditis and you treat it with immunosuppressive drug, you do lots of damage. So there was a, about five big randomized clinical trials that actually tried to assess the usefulness of immunosuppressive therapy on myocarditis patients. All of them uh, enrolled about 100 patients, and none of them did stratification based on virus, non-virus. So they just would you know, divide the patients in half and treat some of them with immunosuppression and the others with normal uh, supportive therapy, and they didn't see surprisingly much of an improvement. So I think uh, truly what needs to be done is in the beginning stratify the patient on virus, non-virus myocarditis, and then treat the non-viral one. Uh, with immunosuppressive drugs. So when sub-analysis of some of these studies was done, it looks like there might be a benefit for this group, but this was also a post-analysis. So we can take it as a weak evidence. High-dose IVIG is used mainly in uh, pediatric patients. And again, we don't have a randomized clinical trial. We have case reports of improvement, but uh, that really cannot be uh, taken as evidence. Immunoabsorption of disease-causing antibodies, especially of some antibodies, is really very uh, fashionable in Europe. I haven't seen anything done like that in, in the United States. And there is a big clinical, randomized clinical trial that is ongoing in Germany uh, for myocarditis patients. So I think that will be a, with a benefit to the whole community to know if uh, immunoabsorption of antibodies has any benefit uh, for the patients. And uh, lastly, interferon uh, beta has been used for viral uh, infections, for viral myocarditis. Again, we don't have a good randomized clinical trials, but in small studies with few patients and case report, this has been helpful, and some clinicians in the field are recommending that this, been, this, this is used for patients that uh, have uh, viral myocarditis. So in about a case series of 10 patients, it was shown that it completely cleared all of the patients' clear virus from their heart, and we know from larger clinical studies that when you have a persistent viral application in the heart, you do worse. So it seems to reason that perhaps this, this could be a beneficial therapy. But the immunosuppression and uh, biological therapy to autoimmune uh, causes of myocarditis is a still open question and something that uh, I have been working on and I want you to talk about today. So just lastly, prognosis about myocarditis patients. So uh, myocarditis is a serious disease. 50% of the patients recover completely and will have a normal heart fun function and minimal scarring. However, 25% of the patient will have persistent chronic systolic dysfunction, and another 25 will progress to end-stage uh, dilated cardiomyopathy, and the prognosis uh, is not very good, and it will result in transplantation or death. So dilated cardiomyopathy, just to remind everybody, is an enlargement of ventricles and thinning of the wall, as you can see on this picture. It could be a left ventricle only or, or both ventricles with a decreased uh, cardiac function. And once you develop dilated cardiomyopathy, postmyocarditis, uh, 
it is a major cause of uh, transplantation for children and young adults below 40 years of age. And you can see that the survival is quite low, and it actually has not improved in the last 10, 10 years, uh, especially for the category, pediatric category. Um, so transplantation is, is, is the only hope for many of these patients. So I was always intrigued by this uh, clinically, why we you know, have some, some patients, half of them, that recover and are doing fine, even though they might have pretty low cardiac function to begin with. And then there is this other group of patients that they will go on and develop adulted cardiomyopathy, and we wanted to study that. So we um, adopted this uh, mouse model of myocarditis. It's called experimental autoimmune myocarditis. So you induce uh, the myocarditis by a myosin um, peptide, so the specific molecule for, for the heart. You will not have inflammation in anywhere else, in skeletal muscles or any other organs. You mix it with a potent adjuvant because you need to break the tolerance to induce autoimmune myocarditis. So we basically will give this mixture twice within one week. And three weeks later, we will have a very severe myocarditis that resembles giant cell myocarditis with a very similar infiltrate uh, to giant cell myocarditis. And if we wait later, uh, we will develop, the mice will develop dilated cardiomyopathy with fibrosis uh, and heart failure. Um, so around 2000, um, 2005, uh, TH17 cells were discovered. So I just remind you of the different types of uh, CD4 T cells, uh, CD1, uh, TH1, TH2, uh, TH17. So TH17 cells uh, are making IL-17, GMCSF, and other uh, cytokines and hemokines, and have been shown to be instrumental in causing autoimmune disease in humans and in many um, animal models. So when we saw that, and we had this model of autoimmune myocarditis, we were really interested in what this TH17 cells can do in myocarditis. So there was no studies at that time. So we induced myocarditis in our mouse model in mice that are lacking IL-17. And this is basically a picture of the whole heart. You can see a left ventricle and piece of the right ventricle right here. And the blue is the inflammation. And here, this is a score. Each individual dot is an individual mouse. And we basically use uh, modified Dallas criteria for scoring myocarditis in our mice. And higher the score, the more severe myocarditis. So in black dots are wild type mice. And the empty dots are L17A knockout mice. And you can see there's absolutely no difference, right? The R17 deficiency did not protect mice from having myocarditis. So that was quite surprising. And my student, graduate student whose project this was, he was like, I will never graduate. My PhD is like, oh my God, this is awful. Uh, so I was like, okay, don't despair. Let's try again. You know, we have the second phase of dilated cardiomyopathy. Let's see what happens there. And luckily we did. Because uh, even though these mice have completely comparable myocarditis, they actually are protected from dilated cardiomyopathy. So echocardiography and mode pictures on the top. This is a naive uh, mouse heart, and you can see this beautiful uh, bumping of the heart and normal left ventricle and systolic and diastolic dimension. In a wild-type mice, we induce this quite severe dilated cardiomyopathy. And in r 17 a knockout mice, uh, the picture looked like a naive mouse, right? This is completely different from the wild-type animals. And here you can see it in a group statistics in a longitudinal, longitudinal study. The wild-type mice are losing their cardiac function while the L17 a knockout mice, they don't batch, completely stable. And when we look at the fibrosis, the wild-type animals, lots of fibrosis, so that the blue staining is signifying fibrosis. And the L17 a knockout mice completely protected from, from fibrosis. So this was very interesting. So we suddenly have a model of having myocarditis, but protection from dilated cardiomyopathy. So something that I was interested in to begin with, you know, why some patients don't develop dilated cardiomyopathy despite having a lot of inflammation. So we decided to study that. So here we just wanted to show that could this be, you know, use 
clinically, so we actually block R17 with uh, monoclonal antibodies, and we did it later in the course of the disease. So we started two weeks after the disease induction, and we achieved a very similar result that we saw in the knockout mice. So we can prevent uh, dilated cardiomyopathy by treating uh, mice with anti-R17. And here, uh, later after our studies was published, a colleague of mine uh, have looked at endomyocardial biopsy of myocarditis patients and, and uh, idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy patients to see if R17 is also present in the human heart. So is this translational? And indeed it is. So you can see here, myocarditis and dilated cardiomyopathy patients have an increased R17 in their sera and also in their heart. So you can see this quite a, a severe staining of IL-17 in the heart. So this is something that is also happening in human heart. So since we had this wonderful result in myocarditis, I thought, you know, is this a universal mechanism that a heart um, fibrosis and uh, remodeling is driven by IL-17, no matter what inflammation uh, is present. So we, we have this model of myocardial infarction in the lab that we induce by ligation of left anterior descending artery, as you can see on this picture. So it's a permanent ligation, so it's a very severe infarction, um, and the mice will develop uh, severe necrosis and scarring and, and severe heart failure. And we induce this disease in mice that are lacking IL-17 receptor. So here you can see example that's a normal heart that was shame-operated, wall-type animal with this very large fibrotic scarring of the lung ventricle. And IL-17 receptor knockout mice had a smaller scar. And you can see it here on the group statistics. There was a smaller scarring, and more importantly, the mice live longer, didn't die as readily as wild-type animals. So it seems to be a universal mechanism for a heart failure development in the heart, and no matter of the, what the origin of inflammation. So we are... Um, uh, scientists, so we wanted to really know why is IL-17 driving heart failure and fibrosis. So we went to our strengths, which is a multi-parameter flow cytometry from the heart tissue that we can do from both uh, mouse tissue as well as human tissue, and we wanted to immunotype and really look at the different types of immune cells in the heart, because we see by histology that the disease looks very similar, but there must be some differences, and we wanted to identify them. So I will not show you the whole panel, but only what was the most striking difference. And that was in myeloid panel. So we saw number of myeloid cells was comparable between wild type and IL-17 A knockout animals, but there was a difference in the composition of the myeloid cells. So we used uh, marker Lysic-C in mice to identify uh, inflammatory uh, monocytes. And these inflammatory monocytes were markedly decreased in the absence of IL-17 compared to wild type mice in the peak of inflammation in the heart. Um, just a reminder what, what they are. So we could divide monocytes to two categories, inflammatory and patrolling. In mice, we use the Lysic-C marker. Lysic-C high would be the inflammatory, and I will be using this a lot. So please try to remember. So when I'm saying Lysic-C high, it's inflammatory. Lysic-C low would be patrolling. And in humans, we have a similar uh, cells, but different markers. We use CD14 high and CD16 positive or negative for the inflammatory ones, and CD14 negative, uh, 16 positive for the patrolling. They have other characteristics that are very similar, including uh, hemokines receptors and other things that I'm not going to go into. Uh, we wanted to make sure that in our mouse model, these Lysic-C high are truly inflammatory, so we fax sorted them, and we compared the PCR profile of this Lysic-C high and Lysic-C low, and look at different uh, uh, chemokines and cytokines and products that signify inflammation. So you can see here in orange, everything in orange is higher in Lysic-C high monocytes, everything in blue is higher in Lysic-C low. And you can see by these genes that we have lots of inflammatory cytokines like IL-1, beta, IL-6, TNF, alpha, um, thrombospondin, and other inf uh, inflammatory associated uh, products. Uh, two things I want to point out to you. I'm sure you have heard and maybe even use the nomenclature M1, M2 uh, that is being used very often. So it 
cannot be, uh, uh, it is not replaceable, saying Lysixe high RM1 and Lysixe low RM2. The reason is, if you remember the signature uh, genes to identify the M2 uh, monocytes would be arginase and hitinase like 3 that are induced by, by IL-4 and TH2 cytokines. And here you can see that we actually have them upregulated not in the Lysixe low, as you would predict based on M1 and M2, but in the, in the Lysixe high. So this has been experienced not only ours, but, but other people that are working in in vivo model, that the simple M1, M2 nomenclature does not map very well to in vivo to the, to the tissue. Um, so I really prefer and urge you all to use um, functional uh, nomenclature or a, a very precisely marker-based nomenclature for defining monocytes. So we wanted to see, you know, so we have this IL-17 and we are missing uh, this very inflammatory monocyte uh, type in the heart. But why is that? Is IL-17 acting directly on the monocytes or is it acting on other cell? other immune cell or other resident cells to causing this change. So we did want to test uh, every cell one by one and see, you know, IL-17 monocytes, other immune cells, resident cells. So we decided to use this tool that we, we like as immunologists, and that is bone marrow chimera. So in bone marrow chimera, uh, you irradiate a mouse and you give it a bone marrow from a different animal. And this way you can create a mouse that is lacking IL-17 receptor in bone marrow and is wild type in its heart, or at the opposite, that is a mouse that is lacking IL-17 receptor in its cardiac cells but has a normal immune cells. And that will tell you, you know, IL-17 signaling to stroma cells in the heart or the immune cells is important for development of uh, dilated cardiomyopathy. So we had many outcomes of this uh, chimeric experiment, but I'm just staying with our Lysixe story, with our inflammatory monocytes. So these are four chimeras, and uh, don't worry, I will walk you through. So here you can see that it tells you a cardiac resident cells, what kind of genotype uh, the heart has. And hematopoietic, what kind of genotype the immune cells have, right? So you can see these two chimeras, this one and this one on the side, are control chimeras. So they have everything, either wild type or everything, uh, L17 receptor knockout. And you can see that behave like the mice that we saw before. In a wild type, you have lots of inflammatory monocytes. In knockout, you have a much less. So the two chimeras in between are the experimental chimera that we care about. So let's look at them. So this chimera, this first one, does not have a decrease of Lysixe high, and that's the chimera that is lacking IL-17 hematopoietic cells. So you can conclude from that that signaling to hematopoietic immune cells uh, is not needed for inducing of heart failure of, or inducing uh, a Lysixe high uh, in, in the heart. However, this chimera is comparable to the full knockout. We are missing this Lysixe high population then the IL-17 is knocked down in the cardiac cells. So it was a little bit surprising. We didn't expect that. But clearly you can see that IL-17 needs to signal to the stroma cells, to the heart cells, to cause these changes in the immune cells. So what cells? So we tested them by one one, and I will not show you the negative results, only the positive ones. So these are cardiac fibroblasts. So we isolate cardiac fibroblasts from a mouse, and we can do it also from humans with the same result. And we uh, stimulate them with IL-17 and see what happens. So we found that they are making lots of hemokines and cytokines, and you can see them also listed here. And they are all myelotropic, so they are bringing neutrophils and myeloid cells to the heart, and they also make these growth factor, GMCSF and GCSF, that are important for differentiation of, uh, of macrophages and myeloid cells. So, so we had this hypothesis now that IL-17 signaling to cardiac fibroblasts will induce uh, these hemokines and cytokines and will change the myeloid cells to become very inflammatory. So we tested that. So the way we did that was we put uh, in a dish fibroblasts from a wild-type mouse, uh, stimulated with IL-17, and then we fact-sorted 
monocytes from IL-17 receptor A knockout mice, uh, so the monocyte cannot receive any IL-17 signaling. So if there is any change in this monocyte, it has to be through the fibroblast. It cannot really see the IL-17 itself. Then we fact sorted the monocytes after the end of the culture and analyzed them by RT-PCR. And I'm showing you just one uh, analyte that we did, IL-1-beta. If you remember when we saw that, uh, that PCR from the, uh, from the LI6C high monocytes, IL-1-beta is one of the genes that is highly upregulated. So what happens when we do this? So we stimulated the fibroblasts, IL-17, and look at the IL-1-beta in the monocytes really shoot up, right? And you remember that GMCSI was one of the products of fibroblasts induced by, by, by IL-17. So when we block GMCSF in this culture, we actually decrease the IL-1-beta in the monocytes, proving that IL-17 is acting through GMCSF as an intermediator here to causing these inflammatory changes in the monocyte. And when we add to the culture just a recombinant uh, GMCSF without IL-17, we will actually have very similar changes that we caused by IL-17 alone. So I want to stop there with the monocyte story and turn towards the fibroblasts. So this is the first time that anybody has described a very uh, a severe production of GMCSF in the heart uh, by cardiac resident cells. Um, and we wanted to see, you know, is all cardiac fibroblasts making this GMCSF, or is there a subtype of fibroblasts that is designed to, to, to respond to inflammation in such a manner? So cardiac fibroblast field is not an easy field. It's not really well defined how do you use markers to define different subpopulations. Different markers are being used by different uh, uh, publications. So we had a, quite a difficult task before us to characterize the cardiac fibroblast subset in our myocarditis model. So what we did uh, here, this is an example of our uh, flow cytometry strategy, and I will walk you through it. So we use first marker of CD31, that is a marker of endothelial cell, and CD45 marker of immune cells. And you can see endothelial cells will be CD31 positive. This will be your CD45 or the immune cells in the heart. And the negative uh, fracture will be your fibroblast. Uh, there's a subtype of fibroblast that is also in this positive fraction. It has some characteristic as myeloid cells and some characteristic as fibroblasts. So they are called fibrocytes and they are here. So that's the one fracture of uh, fibroblasts we identified. And then in this negative fracture, we use marker SKY1 to identify SKY1 negative and SKY1 positive fibroblasts. And this is just uh, proof that these are fibroblasts, so these are pine fibroblast markers. And other markers used in the field, PDGF receptor alpha and periostin. So this is all upregulated in this uh, type of fibroblast. So please remember this marker. We will come back to it in a moment. So who is making, who is making the GMCSF? Uh, so we, we stain for intracellular GMCSF in these different populations. And without further ado, is this Sky1 fibroblast that are making GMCSF. So you can see basically this protrusion here is the GMCSF. The Sky1 negative Nordic fibrocytes are making GMCSF. So we were able to identify this specific population that is making GMCSF. And it is a lot of GMCSF. So what we can do by full cytometry is basically look at the whole population of GMCSF and then identify the cells that are making it. And you can see that the fibroblasts are outperforming the lymphocytes, which is very surprising in the field because we knew that CD4 T cells are making lots of GMCSF. And it was always so that they are the main cells talking to the myeloid cells. And we, here we surprisingly see that it's not them, it's actually cardiac fibroblasts that are instructing the myeloid cells in the infiltrate. So we have some human biopsies, and this is very difficult because uh, we don't just get enough for our research. So we were able to get these five patients from myocarditis, 
patients, and these are ischemic patients. So all of these patients were, uh, were getting a pump uh, for a severe heart failure, and when getting the pump, we could get a research biopsy also, and we were able to do a multi-parameter flow cytometry and try to see if fibroblasts in human heart also make GM-CSF. So the, the uh, results are a little bit more variable than we see in, in mice. One of the results is that these are patients with length of the disease that varies. So this one patient, for example, here, uh, this one is a very acute giant cell myocarditis. It was second day, second day after the presentation, and the patient died uh, within five days. So he has a very severe uh, GMCSF and CCR2 production by the fibroblast. Some other patients were more chronic. Uh, many of the patients in the category of ischemic patients were uh, very chronic and years in heart failure. No? <laughs> Red. <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> so you can see. So you can see here that most of the patients with myocarditis are actually making GMCSF in this quadrant in their fibroblast, but many are also making CCL2 and GMCSF together. So CCL2 is a hemokine that bringing these inflammatory monocytes to the heart, and then the GMCSF is there to make them even more potent and inflammatory. In the ischemic cardiomyopathy, we don't have some patients making GMCSF at all, but they are still making CCL2, so still bringing the inflammatory um, uh, monocytes to the, to the heart. So we don't know, you know, of course, ideally we would like to see does it uh, give you any prognostic markers. So this is too small to, to, to say anything about that, and that would have to be done in the initiation of the biopsy, and that would be our goal. Could we really stratify uh, the types of monocytes that are in the heart to help the clinicians with defining the prognosis similarly that we can see in the mice? But we need a larger sample of patients for that. So remember I told you this periostin marker to remember that. That is actually uh, upregulated in our Sky1 fibroblasts. These are the ones that are making GMCSF. So periostin has been well-described activation marker of fibroblasts. And uh, it has been actually shown to upregulate after myocardial infarction. Um, so when we saw it, and we decided that we can use it uh, as a marker for our conditional knockout mouse. So we showed you, you know, this evidence that, yes, R17 is acting on stroma cells, and we think, based on the in vitro data, that it's fibroblast, but we really haven't shown you the direct evidence that we can knock down R17 receptor specifically on these uh, cardiac fibroblasts, and we can stop heart failure from developing. So this is exactly what we try to do here. So we... Uh, designed this mouse that uh, is using uh, periostin Cree, so that was the marker I showed you before, that's the activation marker of fibroblast that is mostly upregulated by the Sky1 subtype that is making GMCSF. And specifically, these this, uh, cells that are expressing periostin will have IL-17 receptor knockdown from them. So this is not a, a complete knockdown, specific knockdown for cells expressing periostin, which is most of the cells that are making GMCSF. And this, uh, in this study, we not, didn't do a myocarditis based on the background of the mice, but we did an infarction. So infarction, uh, this is a control mice. So sham operated, very nice left ventricle, no scarring. This is a cream mouse and flux mice, so these are basically a controls. And you can see this large scarring here. And this is the... Uh, conditional knockout mouse when, when this R17 candles signal to cardiac fibroblasts, and you can see the scar is much smaller, but don't take my word for it. This is a group statistic for you, so indeed the infarct size is much smaller, and we indeed were able to decrease the GMCSF reduction by fibroblasts by doing this. And most surprisingly, the survival was completely different. So these mice just don't die. So we have even more numbers now, and we didn't have a single death in this category, uh, while the other mice are dying, uh, as you can see 
uh, uh, to, uh, as a wild-type mice do. So this is, um, I think, uh, an evidence that truly R17 signaling to the cardiac fibroblast is important for this pathway. So I would just summarize the pathway for you. So R17 signaling the Sky1 fibroblast is causing induction of GMCSF and other chemokines and cytokines, like CCL2, and it's talking to the myeloid cells. It's bringing them to the heart, and it's making them more pro-inflammatory. And these pro-inflammatory cells are then cause of fibrosis and destruction of the heart and cause of heart failure. So what we really like to do, and what we are trying to work with cardiology department and John Hopkins, is get more biopsies for, for myocarditis patients, because I show you that we have similar inflammatory cells that we can identify in humans, and we would like to see if this could be a prognostic factor. So besides just staining for macrophages, can we also stain for what type of myeloid cells we have in the heart, and can, can that help us uh, to distinguish the patients that are in more dire prognosis than others? And this is all my find finding, and importantly, all my students that have worked uh, on this project. And this couldn't be, of course, done without uh, lots of lots of money <laughs> for our mouse studies. And this is my lab, and we celebrated uh, uh, one of our papers. <laughs> Thank you so much. Question? Yes, please. Going back to your glomerulonephritis. Yes. I'm sorry. This will be dizzying. <laughs> Close your eyes. <laughs> Here you go. Yeah. So uh, I think this demonstrates uh, really nicely that. Um, Basically, it's not a, a group of cells that's kind of attracted to the heart after insult that's causing, you know, the progression of, uh, of the disease. But uh, is it possible that it's like a tissue resident population of TH17s, or do you know what, what subset of cells the, the IL-17 is driving? So we know. We know that. I didn't show you that. So we have, of course, investigated what cells are making IL-17. So it's surprisingly not T-cells. It's actually gamma-delta T-cells. And we are not the first one to show that. There are other um, examples of other diseases when the gamma-delta, they come very quickly, they come big numbers, and they just upload the IL-17. So this is a very quick, you know, within days, you will have a big burst of IL-17 from these gamma-delta T-cells, and then only slowly later when the two T-cells move in, you will have a TH17 cells making IL-17. So actually, gamma-delta completely unperform the TH17 cells. But, you know, good thought there about the resident cells. So I didn't show you some of the data. So myeloid cells are not only coming from the bone marrow, right? There are lots of resident cells in the heart. And really surprisingly a lot. I don't know if you guys have seen, um, there was a last year in Cell from one of our colleagues, uh, Matthias Nahendorf, a very beautiful paper showing that macrophages in the heart are actually needed for normal conduction. So he showed it in a very elegant model that when you don't have macrophages in the heart, the mice actually develop complete uh, heart block. So there is a connection between the uh, pacemaker cardiomyocyte and macrophages, and macrophages are essential for a normal conduction. So this is a huge population of myeloid cells, and they are different subtypes, and we are looking at them now. You know, is it possible that when you have inflammation that this resident population also responds? And we have some indication that that's the case. So it's not only not the monocytes that are coming, but it's also the resident population that is already there that is changing and responding. And uh, really, we have pictures of... Um, uh, cardiac fibroblasts and the macrophages in the heart, and they are very intimately uh, in contact, so they are really talking to each other. So we think that these fibroblasts, uh, they blast the GMCSF and other chemokines and cytokines very quickly after inflammation initiates in the heart, and these resident macrophages could be one of the first that respond. Yes, please. First, thank you. That was a very elegant uh, series of experiments, a very elegant lecture. Thank you. I was intrigued not only by the findings in your myocarditis models, but particularly in your myocardial infarction models. Mm -hmm. And if 
I recall this or interpreted correctly, near IL-17 knockouts, there was less left ventricular remodeling and preservation of myocardial function. That's correct. That's a really big deal. I mean, myocarditis is important. But in terms of prevalence of disease, acute myocardial infarction is way up there. That's why we made, made the switch, of course. <laughs> you know, in my opinion, years ago, when we started first using ACE inhibitors in the trials that showed preservation of left ventricular myocardial that's common therapy. So, in your lab, and then in people who you are working with who are doing the human studies, are you following up on this post my use of maybe an IL-17 monoclonal antibody? And where, where is that? Mm -hmm. So we haven't yet, you know, made that connection with clinicians. So it takes really a big effort and time to do that. So we have that with myocarditis, and we are hoping to do that with infection. So we have few samples, not enough. I think we can get much more. And, you know, to first do a better human study, look at IL-17 and, and how it is, you know, increasing and how, what, what's happening in, a, in, in patients. And, yeah, then perhaps, uh, you know, move on to, to something more than that. But definitely, you know, that's why we were interested to see if the same mechanism is true in infarction, because uh, if this is a common mechanism for heart failure development, then it has much more importance. And I didn't mention, you know, um, after we published our paper and showed GMCSF uh, production by fibroblast and myocarditis, there were two more papers uh, that, are con that confirm our finding. One of them was in Kawasaki, and other was uh, also in infarction. So, th so this has been now confirmed by three independent labs, so I think it is a real phenomenon. Yes, please. Uh, I may have missed this, but once the remodeling has occurred, dilation is present, <laughs> uh, does blocking the pathway have, the IL pathway have any no. effect? No. So we, you know, no miracles there. So once, once there is a fibrosis and once there is... So there is a very elegant paper if anybody is interested in the field of cardiac fibroblast. Now in JCI, they actually did a follow-up study of how fibroblasts change during myocardial infarction. And they show that you have, you know, this early activation, two, three days after infarction. Then they change to myofibroblasts, so they express the smooth muscle actin and they, you know, produce this massive amount of uh, cytokines, hemokines, so that is what we are seeing. But about a week, two weeks later, they change, and they are not expressing smooth muscle acting anymore. They are not a cardio, they are not myofibroblasts anymore. They still, ex they still produce collagen and extracellular matrix protein, so they still contribute to the scar, but they are not making cytokines and hemokines anymore. And in that stage, you know, attacking the R17 pathway would not do anything because they, the cells move on and it's beyond uh, changing the myeloid population. So that would suggest that uh, conventional therapy for heart failure has no, would have no effect on this pathway? Um, no, no. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you, you might very well know, you know about the fiasco with anti-TNF-alpha uh, blockade that uh, happened in 80s, 90s, when they did this, this big randomized multicenter clinical trial trying to block TNF-alpha, one of the most important inflammatory cytokines, for patients with heart failure, end-stage heart failure. And not only did it didn't help, it actually caused a severe deterioration and, and uh, death in, in these patients and had to be prematurely stopped. So I think that is one of the problems of the field, honestly. When, you know, we come in with uh, idea to attack a, is some kind of inflammatory cytokine, this is on everybody's mind. But I think problem there was timing. I really don't believe we should be treating heart failure with immunosuppression or anti-cytokines therapies. And, you know, then something special about anti-TNF-alpha, uh, it was shown late, later that uh, anti-TNF-alpha antibodies are actually binding to cardiomyocyte uh, expressing TNF-alpha and causing cardiomyocyte death. 
So that's really not good, right? So, so this, is, this is something that might have been specific to TNF-alpha, but um, I think really more cautious in the field of heart failure because of that study. Anybody else? Thank you so much.